Okay, our second lesson here is from Mark's Gospel. It's the, they're right there in your liturgy after that beautiful song by Andre Crouch. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he. And they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars, rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes, various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. So the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Open our ears, O Lord, that we would hear Jesus. And open our eyes that we would see the world more and more through Jesus' eyes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The beginning of birth pangs. What a remarkable metaphor for Jesus to use to attach to the violence that was at work in the world in his day. This particular passage is a prophecy about a terrible day that is to come in the year 70 in Jerusalem. That is the year when Jerusalem is routed by the Romans and so many, many, many of its people are killed. That is the year that the temple, the beautiful temple that the disciples are in awe of, will be destroyed. The disciples are in shock that this fate awaits the temple. It is troubling to them on so many levels. The temple was the center of the universe in the theological understanding and worshiping experience of faithful Jews. The disciples cannot imagine faithfulness to Yahweh without it. And yet, Jesus is saying that it's going to be destroyed. For us, almost all of us Gentiles, and living some two millennia later, to state the obvious, it is hard for us to relate to what the disciples were feeling in this moment. Equally hard for us is to relate to the terror that came upon the people living in Jerusalem in the year 70. It is the terror that ordinary people anywhere feel when violence overtakes them at the hands of the more powerful. It is really challenging to talk about all of this for me. Um, I don't live in, well, obviously, 
I don't live in Sudan. I don't live in Gaza. I don't live in Israel. I don't live in Ukraine or anywhere like those places. And I was thinking about that this morning, you know. I mean, just last night, our daughter Palmer and I walked two dogs, dogs that belong to friends of ours from church. Um, you get, a, and I realized this, you know, dog, dog walkers are always kind of fit and ready to go. I understand that. <laughs> you walk dogs, you get exercise, whether you aim to or not. Um, but we walked um, these two dogs in Palmer Square, near where we live, well after dark, well after dark. There are other people out. They were walking their dogs. Dogs were playing together. Peaceful. No threat of anything, really, except of fatigue. <laughs> walking these dogs, or they were walking us. Um, it's a bit surreal for me to attempt to bring a passage like this one to bear on our lives, our world today. It's, it's daunting and um, humbling. Even the word embarrassing comes to mind. I had the privilege of eating at one of Chicago's great Middle Eastern restaurants not long ago. And the, the, the history of that food uh, at that particular restaurant is Palestinian, full-on Palestinian. And it was painful to be there. Almost embarrassing to be there. I was there on purpose, but, you know, it just... We live such comfortable lives, most of us, relatively speaking to millions of people in the world. So it's daunting to talk about a passage that has to do with violence and there's a prophecy about what's going to happen to, Josephus tells us, the Jewish historian, over one million people in Jerusalem in 70, in the year 70. And yet, and yet, and this is why I was grateful for the prayer of calling today, Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us to hear them, read them, mark them, learn them, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, and yet, we will do this thing and dive into this passage a bit and ask God to show us how it speaks to us today in our place and in our time. Now I would suggest to you that there's one main idea here that's very appropriate for us to get our heads and hearts around. And we return to the metaphor of birth pangs to find it. Uh, birth pangs was a metaphor that would have resonated immediately with the disciples. Um, for one thing, um, you know, unless you have, have been close to a loved one that's, that's giving birth, you probably haven't been close to someone giving birth. Um, but in this particular uh, sociocultural setting, you know, people are giving birth all over the place all the time. <laughs> Everybody sees it, and it's mind-blowing, and everybody understands what birth pangs are. 
Um, but the other reason why birth pangs was a metaphor that would have resonated immediately with the disciples uh, is that God's people, if you look at this throughout the Old Testament um, and throughout Jewish literature um, of that same period of time and even close to Jesus' time, uh, you see that God's people were at home with the symbolism of the agony of birth as a way of talking about the suffering that was a part of life. This is a metaphor that was often turned to, the metaphor of birth pangs. The suffering that's a part of life in one degree or another, an existential suffering that is a tragic consequence of the first human's original turn away from God and towards selfishness quickly followed by seemingly unbreakable cycles of violence. But it's birth pangs that the Jewish imagination went to, to think about a metaphor to attach to suffering in a fallen world. Paul takes up the metaphor famously in Romans 8. And I'm just going to read this passage, okay? Because it's one of those passages you're familiar with, but maybe not so familiar with when you think about attaching it as something like what Jesus says here. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in order, in hope, sorry, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its enslavement to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together as it suffers together the pains of labor. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly while we await adoption, the redemption of our bodies, in hope we were saved. For who hopes for what one already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. To use birth pangs as a metaphor to talk about all manner of human suffering and tragedy, that is an audacious way of talking, truly. To talk that way and conform the whole of our lives to a promise that God is at work in the world to redeem and renew requires a robust faith that can only be supplied to us by the Spirit. To read the news and still believe that God is at work in the world, that is what each of us is called to do. I love that uh, Luke Timothy Johnson quote that we trot out from time to time. No one of us believes as well or as much as all of us believe together. And so... When I'm exhausted by listening to the news and feeling embarrassed because I'm exhausted listening to the news because I don't live in a part of the world where those things are happening, I need to be in a place of community 
where other people are believing the same things. That God's purposes are at work in the world to bring hope into suffering situations that seem hopeless, but they are not hopeless because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. But that, that's the message that we embody in word and in deed. And, and that's, I think, a little bit of what's going on in the, in the imagination of God's people when they so quickly run to the metaphor of birth pangs to talk about suffering, to talk about um, the unspeakable that happens in life because birth pangs in the norm are always associated with new birth, with hope, with the smile and laughter of children. And that's our narrative. That grounds us in our life. And that is hard to hold on to. Which is why we're here together. Trusting God to enable us to be held by that narrative. In the overall context of what Jesus is teaching his disciples, and we get more of that context later in this chapter and in Luke and Matthew's account of the same teaching, okay? Um, but in this overall context, we find Jesus saying uh, things that are really kind of a roadmap for his followers in their context. And on the whole, they, they basically amount to a, a high-level summary of what Jesus taught them over the whole of his ministry. Essentially, Jesus is summoning his disciples to believe and have confidence that the center of the universe is no longer the temple in Jerusalem, but is Jesus himself. And that will be something that they need to hold on to, those who are still alive a few decades later in 70, when Jerusalem falls. Um, so that they would believe that when Jerusalem is set upon, this does not mean that this will be the end of God's work in the world or God's work among his people. And most importantly, the message for them is that they are called to love their enemies. In this case, for them, Rome and Romans, and bring the good news of God's love to them. That's exactly what we see happening in the book of Acts. Amazing. What about us? How do we read? How do we read the times in which we live? Do we look at the suffering in the world as a hopeless situation let ourselves be paralyzed by various versions of despair? Or do we boldly embrace the gospel and meet suffering with God's love wherever we are given the opportunity? Do we imagine that the story of the gospel is more important than political narratives that are always of fallen human origin and perpetuate cycles of violence? I understand it's complicated. If you're in the military, if you're a police officer, if you're a politician, if you're responsible for setting policy, if you're trying to defend people around the world, 
you know, from, from situations of which they have no power to defend themselves. I understand. Everything's complicated. And I pray every day for people who control levels, I'm sorry, levers of power uh, to have God's wisdom in their hearts and minds. And moreover, Jesus' self-giving love patterning their lives. But for us as Christians, and for anyone who's a Christian, no matter what they do, the way to appropriate, in my humble opinion, the way to appropriate what Jesus is saying to his disciples about the impending destruction of Jerusalem is he's saying to them, there is a narrative of God's work in the world that you belong to. And it is more important than anything anyone else, anyone else might have to say to you about what's happening when all these terrible things are happening around you. And for us, I think the comfort of most of our situations, the call is to get uncomfortable, to go out and meet suffering and injustice and bigotry, and you fill in the blank, wherever it might be, and to cling audaciously, audaciously to the hope that the suffering of the world is horrible, and it's also birth pangs, which always, normally, end in hope. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.